This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message, which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode perform at a high level? Do you want to perform at a high level while feeling happier along the way and also feeling like more autonomous? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's more sustainable, like figuring out what that, this is so important for people, by the way, like everything that you do, all the decisions that we make from a day-to-day basis, what career we go on, what, you know, what country we live in, all of these things are based around the base layer of what motivates us. Dr. Rick Hansen, how are you? I'm great, John. I'm very glad to be talking with you. And I'll try, you know, I'll try not to be too lame because the previous guests that you've had are extremely impressive. Ah, uh, no, come on. I mean, uh, I, I do admire a lot of the guests that we have, but um, you wouldn't be on here if you haven't, uh, you know, done some amazing work yourself. So I, I, I think I initially stumbled upon your work from your book, Hardwiring Happiness. And um, obviously this is a, a, a big topic that a lot of people have. Happiness, what is happiness? Um, optimizing for happiness. You know, I think different generations have different definitions of, of what happiness really entails. But maybe that's a good question to start with is, um, what is happiness? Like what is actually happening in our bodies that can trigger happiness? And is it defined differently for everyone? Got three questions there. That's good already. Um, So uh, scientists think in terms of happiness as a broad term that essentially has to do with two kinds of well-being. I would use that word, you know, as synonymous with happiness, well-being. And so we have ordinary hedonic well-being, which has to do with physical pleasure, having fun with friends, Uh, looking out, seeing the sunset, enjoying life. Then there's eudaimonic well-being, which has to do with a sense of meaning and purpose or broader fulfillment. And a good example for me is when we had little kids, uh, we would walk them up and down the hall at three in the morning, you know, trying to settle them down. It was not hedonically (laughs) happy, but it was eudaimonically deeply fulfilling as the most important thing in my life. So both of those are the aspects together and they feed each other. They feed each other in terms of happiness. And a person can look at themselves and they can think, well, I'm pretty good on the hedonic side, but not so much on the meaning, purpose and fulfillment side. Mm -hmm. It might also be on the other side of it that someone is having a lot of meaning, purpose and fulfillment. Maybe they're raising a young family. Maybe they're an activist. Maybe they're working 
100 hours a week in a refugee camp and there's tons of meaning and purpose, but they're fried. There's not enough hedonic reward occurring uh, in their life. So that's an interesting thing for people to think about right there. And then in terms of the body, the underlying bodily aspects of well-being, it really kind of boils down to the absence of the negative and the presence of the positive. In other words, having a relatively low amount of, of stress, physical pain, weariness and fatigue, um, as well as relatively low anxiety, anger, depressed mood, you know, kind of low it down in the circuitry that supports that. And then on the upside, um, you know, in your brain, there are these fantastic neurochemical systems that we're learning more and more about that give us both states of well-being of different kinds. And what I'm extremely interested in myself is positive neuroplasticity. Over time, we can develop uh, positive traits of well-being, including an underlying mood of calm, strength, lovingness, gratitude, contentment, and happiness. And that's really super cool. Yeah. So it's those three elements that you mentioned that can, I guess, define what a true happy person could be. Because I think most people think about it as like a present state, as if I'm happy now, you know, like that's why dogs are the happiest individuals. They're not thinking about the past. They're not thinking about the future. They're so totally in the moment. And that's where they're one of the happiest animals. I guess I never heard of someone describe happiness in the sense of purpose and meaning, because uh, that feels more like fulfillment to me. But uh, I guess you're defining that as like a general whole category. Is that right? In terms of well-being broadly, you're right. Mm. People may not usually call, you know, walking the baby up and down the hall, right? Um, or standing by the bedside of your aging parent in the hospital, but that's just what you got to do. But there might actually be deep down inside a feeling of quiet happiness that that you get to do this, even alongside a lot of discomfort. A second really important point is this notion of mood. So yeah, we could think about um, the things that promote um, transit, transient, transitory experiences of positive emotions, which people would tend to also associate with happiness. I would put that in the hedonic category mainly, including uh, social emotions like love, kindness, uh, camaraderie, you know, fellow joint, you know, fellow spirit, having fun together, doing something. Uh, that's certainly true. These are passing experiences. Mm. They're wonderful. They're but they're just states. And you know, from my own background in, in the contemplative traditions, you recognize the impermanence of all mental phenomena. They're always transient. For me, the really useful question is what are we growing inside ourselves as the residues of these lived experiences that build up inner strengths of different kinds, including positive mood, an underlying, um, increasingly unconditional uh, core of inside yourself that, that feels good, that feels open-hearted and, and feels good about yourself and is enjoying life basically and has a sense of optimism. These are, these are traits. Yeah. And, you know, we can use the states we're experiencing plus positive neuroplasticity to make sure that we turn those states into traits. Since most mm. states of mind wash through the brain like water through a sieve, mm. which unfortunately has a negativity bias that means that it captures negative states of mind 
and starts to hardwire them into our body. We have yeah, a brain you that's like um, Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. Yeah. Right. You, you mentioned, I think it was in, in, in the book, that our brains have this negative bias. It's exactly. just the way the brain is designed. And uh, yeah. is that for from a survival perspective that we've had to always look at threats and consequences of being killed, basically? Oh, yeah. To put yourself back in the Stone Age or Jurassic Park, right? There you are. And to put it kind of simply, you've got to get carrots and avoid sticks. Carrots like food, mating opportunities, sticks like predators, or aggression inside your mm. primate band or Stone Age human band, right? The difference is if you don't get a carrot today, you'll have a chance at one tomorrow. But if you avoid, don't avoid that stick today, whack, no more carrots mm. forever. So we have a brain that, as you point out, is designed essentially to do five things automatically, routinely. Number one, scan for bad news out in the world or inside your own being. Number two, over-focus on it. Number three, over-react to it. Number four, over-remember it. And number five, become increasingly sensitized physically to the negative through the activity of cortisol, the stress hormone cortisol inside your own brain. That's kept our ancestors alive. It's led, enabled us to be here today on the top of the food chain. But in modern life, it creates tons of unnecessary stress and suffering in conflict, which among other unfortunate consequences take years can take years off a person's lifespan. So for yeah. me, the takeaway is deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good. And this is kind of that alignment of uh, when you talk about positive neuroplasticity, the ne yeah. neuroplasticity, which yeah, is that um, yeah. it is a mouthful. Yeah. And it's, I, I guess you're saying it, our brains have learned quickly from bad experiences because it could potentially kill us, yeah. but we're slow to adapt to good behavior as a whole uh, because of what you mentioned is like we focus a lot more on the negative biases. So yeah. how does positive, well, I guess, what is it? Yeah. What is positive neuroplasticity? Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, how can we apply that in our daily lives to be happier individuals? Totally. I mean, the practical question is how to grow the good inside of all kinds emotional intelligence, uh, interpersonal skills, uh, compassion, self-worth, gratitude, happiness, resilience, the things we would hope to develop in our kids, the things we'd hope to develop in ourselves. Even how do you grow particular strengths inside that are useful for your current situation? Maybe you're just dealing in a work environment that's extremely fast-paced and there's a lot of you know, there's a culture of criticism flying around in it. You really need to shore up your sense of self-worth that's independent of those kind of darts flying around, maybe. Or maybe you realize that with your teenager, uh, you need to become more patient. <laughs> I wish I had worked harder on that 20 years ago. But anyway, they're okay still uh, today <laughs> as adults. So uh, the question then becomes, how do you grow it? And this is where brain science is super useful and it basically says it's a two-step process. And unfortunately, most people forget the second step. The first step is to experience what you want to grow. You might think, Sean, or a listener might think, what do you want to grow? So you start by experiencing it. Let's say you want to grow more of a feeling of calm or more of a sense of worth. Either one. 
you start to experiencing it. You, often because it's already happening or maybe you deliberately cue it up. You cue up a feeling of calm or you remind yourself of things that help you feel basically worthy, not arrogant, but worthy. All right, now you got the song going in your inner iPod. Step two is to turn on the recorder and make sure that that beneficial experience leaves physical traces behind in a brain that's biased toward the negative. So, and then in my book, which you read, Harboring Happiness, I go through a number of simple evidence-based steps people can engage deliberately to help that experience, that state, leave physical changes in your nervous system. Like just stay with it for a breath or longer. There's a famous saying, neurons that fire together can wire together, can. The longer they wire, the longer they fire, the more they're gonna tend to wire. But instead of jumping onto the next thing, stay with whatever's useful. Second, feel it in your body. Try to help that idea, oh, they like me, or oh, my boss approves, or oh, I got that done, right? Or, oh, it's a pretty sunset. Help that idea become a feeling in your body. And mm. third thing you can do, and there's good research evidence for the neurological power of each one of these methods. Third one, focus on what is rewarding about it. What is either meaningful or enjoyable? Because as you highlight the reward value of the experience you're having at the time, it's gonna create more of a neurological trace behind it. The things I'm saying, require a little bit of mindfulness, you know, but it's it's a it's a little bit of mental effort, but it's sweet effort. It's sweet work. And as you do it for five, 10 or 20 seconds at a time, half a dozen times a day, you feel different. You really feel you mm -hmm. because you're learning in a broad sense, in emotional learning, social learning, body learning. You're becoming, you're growing more and more of the good inside yourself. It's an yeah, incredibly it's, it's powerful method. It's interesting you mentioned that taking that thought you have of a positive experience and turning that into a feeling, because when I look at the reverse of that, of a negative feeling, let's say it's fear, whether it's um, doubt or whether it's someone calling you out or bullying you or calling, calling you certain mm -hmm. names on the internet, you automatically, it seems like your body automatically turns that into a feeling. You don't have to do anything for that to you know, to keep you up at 2 a.m. Uh, about the worries that you have, it's just automatically triggered, which is kind of what you're saying about that we learn to have negative biases. But you're just saying, because our body is doing that negatively, also you should do it on a conscious level for positive experiences so that you can try to, to hardwire that. And it's very difficult for me, and particularly probably for a lot of uh, ambitious or type A people that, have certain wins, you know, you have certain milestones that you achieve and you automatically yeah. want to, you automatically want to go to another one, right? Yeah. You, you accomplish a certain uh, revenue amount or you accomplish a certain weight goal and we're so wired to move on to the next. And totally. just the way our culture is uh, yeah. and to unlearn that is, is the tricky part. Well, you can do both. You know, I'm performance oriented too in all kinds of ways. And, um, what actually research shows is that long-term peak performance is associated with internalizing and growing beneficial qualities inside, including mm. the kind that you know we're talking about here, such as positive mood or happiness. Happiness makes you more resilient. A lot of research shows that people are much more able to bounce back or to weather hard times 
if their underlying mood is more positive, uh, including the positive sense of positive relationships, you know, an emotionally good sense of positive relationships. So it's it's a two for one. Uh, I also think of it also, to be blunt, <clears throat> who's in charge of your mind? Is it the habit pattern of always chasing the next gold ring? Well, then you're a puppet that's pulling your strings. You know, do you have autonomy inside your own being? Are you the boss of your own mind? At least at the level of slowing down mm. for 10 seconds to yeah. enjoy the win or to register the takeaway. Like think about it interpersonally um, in relationships. There you are with somebody and internally you think to yourself, oh, I could be more skillful next time. Right there. To use a term from studies on rats, are you a one trial learner or not? And a lot of people keep going down the same tunnel that they know has no cheese in it, but they keep chasing it or they keep doing the thing that doesn't work rather than learning the first time. You know, so with your friend, your boss, your partner, uh, when you realize, oh, I could be more skillful interpersonally in some way, I can, or I can shift in some way, can you slow down for the five or 10 seconds inside to actually help it land? Then your learning curve, how steep is your learning curve? That's what you and I are talking about right here. Yeah. Wherever the past has been, how steep is your growth curve from here? And how, what can you do that's grounded in straight up science to steepen your growth curve? Going forward, in any area, you know, um, relationships, business, friendships, life, your physical health, your mental health altogether, are you learning? And a lot of people, blows my mind, they have a pretty flat learning curve and they're not even interested in learning. How can you help yourself mm. grow faster, right? Yeah. How can you what, help yourself get it faster? Yeah. What is it about people that – I think Carol Dweck talks a lot about this in the mindset book about yeah. growth mindset folks versus fixed mindset folks. So yeah. what is it about certain people that are always thinking they can improve, always yeah. thinking that no matter what situation they're in, they can always get better and better and better and better versus yeah. people that have you know, traits that limit them to thinking they're only going to be where they are today, no matter what they do. Right. Um, so you're right about the growth mindset. What most people do is they just leave it there. Oh, I can learn. That's better than nothing. But where's the growth skill set? Particularly in how we relate to the experiences we're having at the time. Most people, including my profession, I'm a longtime clinical psychologist, psychotherapist. I think it's an heroic, it's a heroic profession, uh, you know, and, and related professions and then helping professions like counseling or coaching, things like that. And yet, um, in most areas, whether it's in human resources training and business, workshops on mindfulness or self-compassion, coaching, psychotherapy, operate in a growth 1.0 model in which people are regarded as passive recipients of information and experiences. You know, they're going to watch the TED Talk. They're going to go to Wisdom 2.0. They're, right? Great. They're having a great experience. They do a weekend workshop. Great. They see the therapist. Great. Fine. And how much, though, really sinks in? And there's a lot of research that shows that for a large fraction, 
I would suspect not for you. I suspect, Sean, all along, you've had a steep learning curve. You've been one of those people who's understood intuitively what you can do to help yourself, you know, grow a little, learn a little every day. But research shows that probably half to two thirds of the people who do some kind of intervention um, have little or no lasting benefit. That's the dirty little secret. And the third, roughly, and you and I probably are in that third, drag the average of the group far enough that it creates statistical significance compared to a control group. But a lot of people, not much lasting gain. So the question then becomes, why not teach people in a growth 2.0 model how to be active agents inside their own mind with the information they're hearing or the experiences they're having, right? Active agents. And that's what I illustrated in my three little methods so far, and there are more that are neurologically based, deliberately extend the duration of the experience, marinate in it, stay with it, stay with it. Don't let other people move you out. Don't let your puppet, internal puppeteer drag you into the next thing, right? Feel it in your body. Track what's rewarding about it. Any one of those will boost your learning from that experience. And all three of them together are really good. And that involves an active relationship to the experiences mm -hmm. we're having at the time, not just a passive one. And how do you, because you mentioned that happy people tend to be more successful. Yeah. The trouble that I have is, and maybe a lot of people have, is that love-hate relationship with, I associate happiness with some level of satisfaction and the ambition level that you could have because the counteract of being satisfied is that you're good with where you are, which doesn't push you to be thinking so ambitiously because you're perfectly content with where you've come and what you've accomplished, that it doesn't push you to the level that you had when, let's say you're living paycheck to paycheck, you have to figure out some way to work harder and be ambitious. And a lot of that can be attributed to somewhat of a scarcity mindset, I guess. Exactly. I it's day. so interesting. Yep. So yeah, what, how do you help people break out of those limiting That's beliefs? Great, great point. I, I, I would argue I still have those some of those things. Yeah, well, it, you can motivate people in different kinds of ways. Um, you know, fear of punishment or uh, fear of falling behind, FOMO, fear of missing out. Right? Uh, it's a deficit model, and uh, that works typically quite well, especially for the short term. And that's part of the negativity bias. People will, you know, in the short haul, will put out more intense effort to avoid a punishment than to get an equal reward. People will work harder. You know, people are more zapped by losing $100 than by the opportunity to gain $100, for example. Okay, but what about the long haul? There are a lot of costs in that deficit model of motivation, fear of punishment model of motivation, fear of falling short being less than others model. It's stressful. It's emotionally wearing. And that drags down performance over the long haul. Also, uh, it tends to create conflict among people in teams. So then you're suddenly not getting the most productivity you can get out of the team. If you're always looking over your shoulder about how you're going to fall behind or be judged, you know, then it's, it's harder to work together toward maximum output. A lot of research on that. Um, Meanwhile, you can realize alternately that instead of 
being primarily organized around avoiding the bad, you can pursue the good. You can aim for what you care about. And in fact, you can feel motivated by, even lived by, positive purposes that carry you along. You know, there's willpower fatigue. Deficit model, a punishment model, exposes us to willpower fatigue because we keep having to make willpower to avoid the pain, right? Those neural circuits start burning out. They get tired, actually, literally. They lose metabolic supplies. On the other hand, if you're motivated positively, if you're feeling a lot of positive emotion along the way, including the zeal of predatory pursuit, the zeal of going for it. I have a lot of zeal in what I do. I'm still a positive guy. I enjoy it. I'm enthusiastic about it. Um, It's like being motivated by enthusiasm and commitment to certain values that you care about rather than motivated by fears of inadequacy or falling Mm. short. And I just think both the research shows and personal experience that people are going to be more successful long-term if they have high standards for themselves. They have, a, they have a strong work ethic. They have a commitment to excellence, but it comes from love in a sense, if I can use that word here, uh, yeah. and enthusiasm uh, and a feeling that what they're doing in some ways, hopefully it does, is contributing to the greater good. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I, I th- the short-term benefits of burning the fire in your tail and working as hard as you can to survive, to avoid the pain, it can be a very powerful way to get started. And I think it's in, in some certain people, like that's what gets them going to get to a certain level. But once you stop having those pains, um, it's kind of hard to start to motivate yourself. You know, if you're, if you're waking up and you're not worrying about the bills, if you're, if you're going about your day and you don't really care how much you, you spend on certain things. And, and I think it's a long-term, it's not a very sustainable way to keep the same level of work ethic and motivation. Um, and what I've heard is that there's certain people that just are motivated by different things and figuring out what that is for you. Pain is certainly one of them and uncertainty but for some people, it could be contribution, you know, something, something that's bigger than yourself that can motivate you when if you, you can only work for yourself for so long. The other, other one is um, momentum and growth, just the idea of gamifying yeah. so that you're losing a certain weight, even if it's small amounts or you're increasing your revenue just by a little bit. That's just a way to keep going. Some people, yeah. it's materialistic things, right? It's it's a, sure. it's a nice car, it's a nice house, it's mm-hmm. you know buying the fancy brands. That's could be the motivating thing for you. Um, but it's clear there's way more things to motivate yourself than just running away from pain, and trying to avoid pain. Yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of people, um, in effect, they they how can I put it? The takeaway point, I think, a lot is you can still make as much money. You can still be as focused, um, but you can do it on the basis of a different motivational system that's about promoting you know, the positive rather than preventing the negative. Mm. And um, so the question becomes, hey, you're still going to perform at a high level. Would you rather be happier along the way? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And also, frankly, would you rather be more autonomous along the way? 
because many, many people that are acting out, um, you know, kind of a pain prevention motivational system are doing because they let, that's what they learned in school or in their mm. culture or in their, you know, their current job. That's what they just took in to themselves. And they are now being pulled by the strings of that puppeteer, that inner puppeteer. They're actually not a choice about it. They're being driven by a kind of habit rather than being the, the boss inside their own mind of who they are. And, you know, I would, so I think, uh, Either way, people can perform at a high level. Do you want to perform at a high level while feeling happier along the way and also feeling like more autonomous? Absolutely, yeah. And it's yeah. more sustainable, like figuring yeah. out what that... This is so important for people, by the way. Like everything that you do, all the decisions that we make from a day-to-day -day basis, what career we go on, what, you know, what country we live in, all of these things are based around the base layer of what motivates us yeah. on a subconscious and unconscious level. But if you can yeah. bring that to your surface and really understand what are the things that motivate you, is it fancy cars? Is it contributing? Is it, you know, growing just as a better person every day on a continuous basis? Uh, and I think people just don't think about that, right? People are so That's busy right. just running away from the next pain that they have to avoid or the next bill yeah. or uh, avoiding consequences that we're just all running in this factory machine. Um, and I think it's so powerful to really think about, and, and even if it sounds like superficial to think that you're motivated by living in a big house, like if that motivates you, like make that the thing. And maybe once you sure. get those things, you're motivated by something else like contribution or, or philanthropy yeah. or something bigger than you. Um, yeah. If I could add to that, just thinking about it, um, uh, there's a saying, you can never get enough of what you don't really want. And there's a long line out the door of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who, when they look back at their life, feel that they chased the brass ring and they got the booby prize in life. Yeah, they got the fancy car. Yeah, they got the great house, but they did it at the cost of their marriage and the fact that their kids don't talk to them anymore or mm. something else like that. Or they had a heart attack young. Um, or to manage the stress levels, they self-medicated with weed, alcohol, porn, other things, being blunt. And so um, that's a real question. And uh, to be really clear, you know, I'm, I, I live in a Marin County, California. It's an affluent upper middle class, largely community. And it's been important for us to be able to function in, in our community and, and also own a home. And I'm not, I'm not really like a hippie granola eater. Let's all go back to that. You know, I don't know what the yeah. forest and you know, bathe in blueberries. Uh, I like working out. I just saw you move your arms. I see those big biceps. I want some of them for myself. <laughs> you know, I'm goal directed too. I really am. Um, yeah. But there is a deep underlying question like, what's your why? What's the why? And very often, material uh, things are means to an end of, an ex of some experience you want. In other words, there's a, I don't know if you're familiar with this model, it kind of be, do, have. Um, I learned it in the EST training, which I took back in the 1975 or some insanity. I don't know, maybe before you were born. I don't know. Anyway, the <laughs> whole idea is many people think, well, I need to have a house. So then I'll get to do cool parties. 
so I'll finally be um, loved or feel good, right? The problem is the having and the doing that we chase often get in the way of what we actually want to be feeling, where we started, happiness, well-being, fulfillment, and hedonic. We're, we're so caught up in the chase that we don't enjoy the journey, right? And we get the booby prize. Wisdom flips the order. By growing what you want to be inside, naturally those qualities, the, the good you grow inside, those inner strengths, be, express as greater effectiveness with others, more skillfulness, um, more of a positive attitude that other wa people want to be part of. In terms of what you do, you become more able and capable. Um, and as you... Um, do those things more effectively that come naturally from what you are being, then you increasingly start to have that which you really want to have. Mm. You see the reversal? Rather than yeah. working from the outside of having to doing to being, work from the inside, from being to doing to having. And that's a profound idea. Yeah, it, reversing those things, it is, it is very important. I mean, I think a lot of people that lean towards the materialistic things with the base layer built on the fact that people would love me because I have exactly. those things are going you in with it. the intention. And the problem with that, it's you open the gateway for something that's going to be a never ending cycle because you're going to think, yeah. oh, if I have a bigger car or if I have a yeah. bigger house or a better car, more expensive watch, I'm going to be loved more because the, you know, the house foundation is built on sand yeah. and, it's just not a sustainable way to think about it. Um, but speaking of relationships, uh, I wanted to dig the dig deeper into there because obviously you have. Uh, I think your more your more recent book is, is most is, recent. Uh, yeah, yes, your most recent book, uh, "Making Great Relationships," is uh, talking all about this. So, um, I guess for one, like, what have you seen to be? And we'll we'll stick with. Um, partner relationships here, like people that sure. are dating relationships, what do you find to be the most common mistakes that people huh. make that can uh, affect relationships in, in a negative way? Yeah. Well, first off, uh, I think the biggest mistake is that they don't um, take on board the title of your podcast or the growth minds. They don't orient around learning. They don't have a learning curve. They don't have a growth mindset. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's more of, it's an observation. As someone who's been a couples counselor for a million years and has worked in business a ton and, you know, it's just many settings, many different kinds of people. They don't take on board that they can become more skillful in their relationships. They can become more competent in effect. So right off the top, thinking about, oh, okay, with my partner, how can I be more competent as a partner? How do you define that? Like, do you define yeah. that as an individual gaining more skills mm -hmm. or do you feel, yeah. How do you define competence in yeah. a relationship? Great, great thing. So you have the, you have the book right there. Actually, I, uh, I have it on my shelf here. Each one of the 53 page chapters in effect is a skill. So I'm just going to read some random ones from the Please. table of contents and think about these as a skill. So they're, the book starts says six parts to it. You start by befriending yourself, then warming your heart, um, being at peace with others, standing up for yourself, speaking wisely, and loving the world. 
So that's the general sense. So think of this as the skill of accept yourself. People are not very self-accepting. Or mm. think of the skill of seeing the good in others or appreciating their deeper desires underneath the surface stuff that probably annoys you. Or think of the skill of taking it less personally or yeah. um, taking care of your own side of the street, mm. zeroing out to the maximum reasonable extent, reasonable extent, your partner's complaints or unmet needs yeah. for all kinds of good reasons, including put you on the high ground to get your needs met. These are, these are skills or the skills of, um, you know, uh, letting go of needless fear, trying a softer tone, uh, admitting fault and moving on. That's one of my favorites as a guy who's approaching his 41st wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. Uh, resize relationships. That's another key skill. So to me, these are, these are skills. People can get better at that. Yeah, the first so that's one struck what I mean by me. skills. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of it is individual skills. Uh, what happens in which a often are interactive? I mean, there's this there's the skill of for me the book's about what you can do, mm. which includes getting more effective at what you can do to get them to be better. You know, but it's what you can think or say. Yeah, individually, but a lot of which is interactive with another person. Yeah, I mean, it's such a big part of the relationship, right? Is is a lot of it is self work, <laughs> and hoping that the other person is doing the same amount. But I think the first one really struck with me around not being accepting of yourself. Yeah, what happens in a relationship when one person or two people are not able to accept themselves for who they are? What what happens in that relationship? Well, a couple things. One is that. Um, Lack of self-acceptance is accompanied by lots of self-criticism. So when two people are both being quite critical internally, they tend to be prickly when the other person wants something or feels hurt or let down or is mad. So then they tend to overreact first. Second, when people don't accept themselves, they can, pardon me, they can be hungry excessively to being fed and reassured uh, and shored up by the other person. So on both sides of that, it, it's an issue. Um, I think the other thing is that if a person does not accept themselves, which means that you're a work in progress, doesn't mean you're complacent or apathetic, mm -hmm. but there's just a fundamental honesty. First and foremost, acceptance means really recognizing reality. That's fundamental. You don't have to like it. There's a lot about reality I accept. Children die of hunger every day around this world. I don't like that at all, but I accept it's a reality, even though I'm trying to fix it in my own small pond mm. uh, as a little frog. <laughs> you know, do what I can. Um, so my point is about acceptance is that if you don't really accept yourself, uh, all your parts, and if you don't accept your own needs, your deep needs, what do you really care about? It's hard to stand up for them. How do you mm. stand up for what you really care about if you don't accept that you really care about it? So yeah, accepting yourself is really important. Yeah, so it's addressing kind of the, frankly, the negative parts about yourself, admitting that to yourself, communicating that to your partner, letting them know what your needs are, not thinking that you're this perfect individual 
uh, that you know that you, that you might foolishly think that you are, uh, which which doesn't really um, well, it sets expectations in in the wrong order, right, with your partner. When you it, have that. it's also true to accept yourself, um, to to recognize what's good about yourself, you know, and to accept that uh, you you know you care about certain things. You it's important to you. Like certain things that are important to you. It's really important to me to have time in wilderness. I'm a long-time rock climber. I need time in wilderness. It's um, it's important to me to be able to go full throttle with all mm. my abilities. The feeling like I'm actually drawing on all 12 cylinders under the hood rather than being gated continuously, you know, like a, like a horse, you know, uh, forced to go up and down the same rows over and over again. My wife is not like that, but she's... You know, I've had to accept that about myself and then negotiate. A lot of the books about negotiating effectively uh, with your partner because there's a lot about long-term relationships that's about uh, negotiating and repairing. <laughs> if you're not negotiating or repairing, you're not going to have a good long-term relationship probably. Yeah, I, I like what you're Jordan... really lucky. Yeah, you could be lucky. I mean, you could also be settling. Maybe, maybe if yeah. you're able to get away with those parts about yourself, you're... You're not in the most optimal, like, you know, you're maybe, maybe, yeah. um, yeah, maybe you're not thriving in, in your relationships. I like what Jordan Peterson says, where he says, one of the best skills you can have when you're in a relationship is learning how to fight effectively amongst each other. And fight is probably a very rash word to describe it, but it's, it's negotiation is, is, is as you yeah. mentioned, is probably the right way to put it is to negotiate, like not to avoid fights, but know that there's going to be yeah. arguments and disagreements. But if you're strong, out, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, do, do you think we and, should be oh, go ahead. Oh, no, just so much about the book is about that and about how to be strong in the in the in the sweet the sweet spot in the middle, where on the one hand, you're not being a doormat, you're not just kind of sputtering vaguely or using a bunch of euphemisms for what you really want. Mm. On the other hand, you're not coming in guns blazing, hot and heavy, just boom, blowing people out of the water. You're finding that middle place that combines um, kindness and assertiveness. That's the yeah. sweet spot. Yeah. Do you think that if people can't have those things that you mentioned in the book, like accepting yourself and yeah. the qualities that make yourself a great partner that we should be seeking out relationships, long-term relationships when there is a lot of work that is still left to be done? Or do you recommend people to work on themselves to their fullest self first before they seek out a healthy relationship? I think it's, I think um, unless you feel like there's something really fragile inside you, um, I think you're ready. You, anybody, uh, and you can do both of them at the same time, and they also they often feed each other. Mm. You know, maybe take a little bit of time, a few weeks. Now, now sometimes people are really grappling with something. They're just clinically depressed right now. They're functioning. They're going to work, but they don't feel in any shape to go out into the dating market and deal with those stresses and present themselves in a really positive way. So, okay, they're working on something internally for a while. Um, but in general, I kind of think, uh, you know, we acquire these skills in part by getting out on the field and playing. Yeah. Uh, 
you, you want to get good at baseball, play baseball. If you want to get good at rock climbing, rock climb. If you want to get yeah. good at relating, get into a relationship. But then keep, but then be someone who, like you're, again, I love your podcast title, growth. Have a, be a mind of growth. Have a mind of growth. What's yeah. your, what's your growing edge? What are you trying to learn? What's the takeaway? Not like you're being all neurotic about it, you know, and you're trying to write a PhD dissertation about what I learned from dating that person. You know, <laughs> it's, it's more like just internally, just an yeah. openness to growth and which is so confidence inspiring and, and happy because then you're not screwed. You're not stuck. Uh, you can actually learn a little, grow a little every day. Uh, and so it's like you start to redefine the game into one you can win at. I'm thinking here about playing tennis. Like I was mm. like intermediate-ish. And I would play people that I could I could definitely not take a set from. I could probably not even win a game. I might not even be able to win a single point with this pro player or somebody really good, but I could improve my backhand over the course of getting thoroughly drubbed by them. Yeah. That became my inner game. That's yeah. the game I'm winning at, and it's under my control to win at it. So what's what's the inner game, actually, in your own relationships that you can actually win at? You can get better, including getting better and better and better as a relational partner. Yeah. Which then I mean, puts I, you in a better position to who are you reaching out to and what are you getting from them? Yeah, go on. No, no, absolutely. I was just going to say that, um, I mean, the, the relationship that I'm currently in now, which is close to a year now, is actually my first real relationship. And these are questions that I asked myself that perhaps other people are also asking is yeah. what are the things that I need to work on myself to get to a certain point where I can be with someone so that one plus one equals three, not one plus one equals, you know, 1.5. Yeah. And I got to a certain point where I was like, all right, like I'm self-motivated. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I can, and can commit to my own words and do it. You know, at a certain point, you kind of have to take that leap, right? And I, I've realized that um, there are just so many things I didn't know I didn't know before entering in situations like this. And um, one of the most important things I've learned is is just the importance of having difficult conversations and communicating. Um, and 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 yeah, these there there's so many lessons to be learned uh, that you just don't know unless you actually take that leap of doing it. You know, I still have questions around, uh, around as I'm learning, going through this process. Oh, that's very sweet. Um, if I could put you on the spot, please. Uh, if you ask yourself, what, what maybe is one thing that you would like to grow inside, uh, related to this particular relationship? What are you, what are you focusing on these days to grow inside? Yeah. So for, from, <laughs> it's going to get real personal, I guess, but one thing that I have struggled with a lot is uh, communicating verbally uh, around appreciation uh, because I think we communicate with others the way we communicate with ourselves. And some yeah. of the way we communicate with ourselves has been through how we've been communicated as a child. You bet. And growing up in a very conservative Korean family, I've always been taught to move on to the next goal. It's not good enough. You know, this is yeah. okay, but you can do better. No matter what the outcome model. was, yeah. Versus my partner, she's grown up with a very opposite, and you know we joke around about this as well. And for me to meet in the middle has been a challenge because I'm unlearning a lot of the instincts that I had, not with just her, but with myself and how I talk to myself. And yeah. this is why it's so interesting to have someone like yourself on about 
you know, really hardwiring the happiness and letting it sit in the feelings. Um, so yeah, th those are things that I'm, I'm continuously trying to, trying to learn. Um, but yeah, for, for people listening, um, I guess what, what are the, what are the things that they can do if they are hesitating entering into a relationship? Cause these are questions that I had, um, around how they should be yeah. approaching these situations. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Sean. And, and for me, I tip of the hat um, to be courageous, really. And I'll be blunt. I think a lot of people, particularly men, a lot of men are um, very brave when it comes to things and actions and often cowardly when it comes to relationships and, and not being courage, interpersonal courage, the courage to be revealed courage to be disclosed, uh, the courage to be exposed. Um, it's really honorable and takes courage. And so I tip my hat to you, you know, for having that courage. And um, I think that one of the things that I'm, I'm really struck by, again, it's grounded in research, is that there's a negativity bias in relationships. And a lot of research shows that there needs to be some kind of ratio. There's a little debate academically on average. Is it three to one? Is it six to one? But it's a ratio in which positive needs to vastly outnumber negative. Hmm. So one way to manage that is to make sure if you're going to go negative with your partner with a suggestion or an observation, quote unquote, let alone a criticism, all of which communicate some kind of critique right? Um, to, to be really thoughtful about not doing it just gratuitously or casually and realize you're going to pay a price. Every single negative communication, you pay a price. It has a cost. Are you prepared to pay that price? And sometimes we are because the benefits outweigh the cost. And, uh, you got to say certain things, but man, there's a cost to it. Don't just mm. do it automatically, right? Because that's how you were raised maybe. Second, what's the presence of the positive? That's the most important thing. To, and it's when I came across this research in grad school, because I, I was raised also in a critical, fault-finding, performance-oriented home with good intent from my parents. Sounds like your parents, of course, had good intent as well. Um, you know, with my partner, I, I realized with my she was my wife, actually, at the time I was in graduate school, I came across this finding and I immediately rewound the last couple of day or two from her perspective. What's the ratio of positive to negative? And I realized, dude, I got to raise my game. I got to up my game, you know, increase the positive, authentic positive, you know, communicating appreciation, communicating gratitude, uh, communicating warmth, you know, being present, just being present, not, you know, with your eyes darting to the remote control. What else can I watch now? You know, check your phone. No, stay present. These are all positives. So, and I would say, maybe I know we're finishing up here, I guess. Um, for somebody who's entering into a relationship, I would, if I were, could just say two things, I'd say one, trust your own natural goodness. You have natural, you have a naturally good heart. You're on the learning team. You do want to learn. Trust that, you know, have some confidence in that. And what other people do is mainly out of your hands. And, and when you, if you go dating and you don't get the feeling within the first 20 minutes that they think you're awesome, they probably never will. Mm. 
if within the first 20 minutes, you don't really have that sense like, wow, that person's awesome. You probably will never feel that way about them. So, um, you know, if a person, if you're going out and you don't get the vibe that they think you're really cool and they're really into you, um, they're DQ'd, disqualified. Mm. Right. Are there that would be my first suggestion. Where... You're good, but here's my second one really fast. Yeah, go for it. Del deliver the good to the other person. Take it on board. Find the good in them. Support what's good in them. See the good in them. Uh, reflect the good in them. Mirror it back to them. Not because you're trying to flatter them in some manipulative way, but because it's your sincerity. You sincerely recognize that. And imagine what's it like to be with someone who just keeps seeing the good in you and feeding it back to you and appreciating it in, in authentic ways. You want to be around them. It's a great way to make yeah. yourself quite attractive. All right. Your turn. Sorry. No, no, no. I was just, I was just going to pitch in there that, um, there, there are things that, um, that I've even personally realized where I felt it, but just decided that it felt uncomfortable for me to express it. And yeah. a lot of the times it's getting out of your comfort zone when, uh, you're in these relationships because you're hoping you're, you you have to realize that this person is a completely different individual with different life experiences with different expectations and they're not mind readers right and um yeah yeah i think i think what you said is a very good takeaway for this well i better wrap up if that's okay i've yeah. got another meeting here um this has been thoroughly fun to talk with you sean like that's i can see great. why this podcast is so popular i mean it's really good it's really a pleasure same wise for you. I can see why your books are so popular. It's, uh, it's been a real honor and um, hopefully we can have you back. And I think a lot of people sincerely enjoyed this uh, conversation about relationships, about happiness and uh, yeah. looking forward to having you back here. Oh, excellent. Excellent. You take All care. All right. All right. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Thanks so much, Dr. Rick Hansen. Talk to you soon.